let's just pray together. Father, we just thank you right now for your blessing and uh, Lord, for being with us in the house of God. But Lord, we know now we're approaching the sacred word of God, the God-breathed word. And Lord, we ask you in the name of Jesus to speak to us, to minister to us, to open our understanding. So that, Lord, we glean from your word. We're fed by your word. We grow by your word. I pray that you will clear out the cobwebs and the fog in some minds, uh, questions that haven't been answered but will be answered. We thank you for it, Lord, and we thank you for peace in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it's going to be good even though he can't see good. It's going to be good. No, it's not that bad. It's not as bad as I'm making it seem. Um, Now, I want to say straight up, there's still more questions I could not get to. So I'm going to deal with them next week. Questions about uh, how do we know whether or not a Christian should vote? I'm going to to talk about that. Um, Some good questions that have come in that I just didn't have time to get to. I'm going to do as many as I have prepared for, and I, I believe... I'm going to be able to get to the last one, but they're good questions. And and so I want to thank you for sending in the best questions I've ever received for any Wednesday night hot button question time. I've never received uh, as good and quality of questions as I've been getting for this one. So give yourselves a hand. I say, give yourselves a hand. All right. Now I'm going to start out real simple. Uh, it seems like a simple question, but, it, but uh, you know, this person wondered this, and, and I think that a good point can be made. But the first question that came to me was, is it appropriate for the lost to be given the opportunity to give their life to Christ at the end of Wednesday night Bible study? In other words, what they're saying is, why don't you give invitations after Wednesday night Bible study? That's what they're, I assume, what they're saying. Now, let me just answer it. Yes, it's appropriate. However, on Wednesday nights, we come together for the express purpose of teaching the Bible to God's people. Now, that's the primary reason we come on Wednesday nights. Uh, Jesus told Peter three times, what did he say? Feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Now, my authority for these questions is the Bible, always the Bible. The Bible is my authority. The Bible is my source of truth. And if I accept other truth, it has to line up with the book of truth. Now, that's what I've arrived at. And you say, well, that's, Jeff, that's really narrow. Jesus said the way is narrow. Okay? And I've learned that the Bible is God's book of truth. And so if something is true that's taught out there in the culture, it will line up with Scripture. And if it doesn't line up with Scripture, guess what? It's not true. Amen? Amen. So, so having said that, let me just show you where I get that we come together for, to be fed the word of God. Paul the apostle instructed the church about their local gatherings. And he said, what then is the right course, believers? When you meet together, each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, which means a disclosure of special knowledge, a tongue, or an interpretation Let everything be constructive and edifying and done for the good of all the church. Of all what? The church. So when you come together, what you do should be for the good of the church. Paul's focus here is clearly on the believers. The local church is primarily called to be a place of encouragement, edification, exhortation, and spiritual growth for the saints. So Wednesday nights... Uh, I do this on purpose. You know, a lot of pastors don't teach on Wednesday nights. They just don't teach on Wednesday nights. And you get a a message on Sunday that is generally topical, which means it's about a particular topic. And so that pastor will preach on, teach on, treach on. I kind of treach myself, a little teaching, a little preaching. But they will speak on a topic, maybe for two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, and you're getting a topical message. But I contend that a certain anemia gets into the body of Christ when you don't get expository teaching, which means you, you get taken through whole books, through the whole Bible. 
Because God gave the whole Bible, did he not? He gave the whole Bible. So uh, I don't want to just feed you potatoes. I want you to get Del Frisco T-bone. I want you to get, I want you to get uh, uh, green beans and, and butter and rolls and apple pie and are you with me? What? Oh, and coffee always. On the eighth day, God made coffee and said it is good. Didn't you read that in Genesis? Amen. All right. So having said that, if the Holy Spirit moved on me to, to give an invitation on Wednesday nights, I have done it before. I would do it. But we're, we're coming together. I want to feed you. I want you to be well-fed. I want a healthy congregation. And I know where that comes from. It doesn't come from Jeff Wickwire. It doesn't come from a name on a sign. It comes from the Bible, the Word of God. Amen? Now, I'm going from an easy one to a more difficult one, but here we go. Are the phrases prosperity gospel and word faith message synonymous? All right, let me answer that. One dictionary definition of prosperity gospel is this. In case you're wondering what it is, what's the prosperity gospel? Here's a dictionary definition. A belief among some Christians that God rewards those who live faithful lives with material wealth. Okay? Now, that's the prosperity gospel in a nutshell. And it's everywhere in America. That, the prosperity gospel is everywhere taught in America. Now, they want to know, is the prosperity gospel and word faith message, are they synonymous? So let me tell you what the word faith message is in a nutshell. This, again, is a dictionary. But the word faith movement teaches the power or force of faith, that faith is a force. Faith is a force. And proponents of this message believe they can use words to manipulate the faith force. And they actually create what they believe Scripture promises, health, wealth, and so on and so forth. That you, you get what you say. We, we, you know, it's, it's an old joke, but name it, claim it, blab it, grab it. Okay, that's, that's kind of it. Now, first of all, let me say up front, I, I'm not dealing with personalities. I don't know people who are prominent uh, preachers or teachers of this. I deal in doctrine. I deal with teaching. I don't deal with personalities. You know, if I hear a message, I want to know if it's biblical. I don't care who's saying it or not saying it. It has nothing to do with people for me. You know, I'm like a doctor that, that, and you come to me for a physical and I'm going to find out something's wrong with you. And if I feel like I've discovered something is wrong with you, I'm going to tell you what I think is wrong, right? Or if I'm a CPA and, and you want to know what's wrong with your finances, and I go through your books and I see how you're handling your money. If I see something uh, wrong, I'm going to tell you what you're doing wrong with your money. So I'm, I'm a doctor. Now, I'm using metaphors here, but I'm like a doctor of theology. And, and, and if I hear a teaching that is sound, I'm going to tell you it's sound. But if I check out that teaching like a doctor checks out a body and I, th- and I think, well, this is not entirely sound, I'm going to tell you. But, but again, it has nothing to do with personalities. Now, let me say first that I believe God wants to bless his children. How many of you believe that? God wants to bless his children. Amen. How many of you are blessed tonight? Amen. Me too. I, I love the Lord. He's a good God. Amen. Now, and we know that God wants to bless his children by many, many Bible verses. Let me just give you a few. James wrote in James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above. And where does it come from? It comes down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's never changed. In eternity past, eternity future, present tense, he's never changed, never will. He's the eternal, uh, same God. Amen? Now, Notice, he describes the gifts as good and as perfect. So he's wanting us to know that when we get a good gift, a perfect gift, and I'm going to tell you what I think he means by that in a moment, 
It comes from the Father of lights. It comes from him. Now let me give you another example. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 6, 17, tell those who are rich not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which will soon be gone. How many of you ever noticed that about money? I mean, you got it and then you don't. You go, where'd it go? It makes itself wings and it flies away. And have you ever noticed everybody's after your money? That's another topic. But look what he says. It'll soon be gone, but their pride and trust should be in the living God. And look what it says about God, who always richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. That's not, does that sound like a killjoy God to you? No, a party pooper God to you? A God that wants to ruin your life or you're never happy again? A God that wants to turn you into a Bible thumper that never laughs or smiles? No, look what it says. God richly gives to his children everything we need for our enjoyment. Amen. Now that's our God. Amen. Can we thank him for that tonight? Come on. That's our God. Now just hold that thought. Now Paul wrote that. Now we come to Jesus himself. Jesus said, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will your Father in heaven give what? Everybody say it out loud. Good gifts to those who ask him. Now, we can take those three verses and surmise easily that God is a giving God. He's a giving God. He's a giving God. But here's the catch. Now, watch this. Follow me carefully. These verses have little to do with material wealth. The dinero, the peso, the franc the Deutschmark, nothing, okay? One commentator writes, the good gifts James speaks of may most fairly be understood as the best gifts, those gifts of grace, the spiritual blessing spoken of in Ephesians 1.3. Let's read Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with what, everybody? Read it with me. With every, what kind of blessing? Spiritual. Spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, follow me. Track with me here for a minute. When Jesus says that the Father gives good gifts to those who ask him, it says nothing about those gifts being material riches unless you read that into it. If you read it into it, that's what you're going to think. But if you looked at the original language or if you just look at those verses without, and, and put out of your head everything you were ever taught and just read it as it says, as it speaks, as it's written. You can't surmise he's talking about money here. It says nothing about those things being material riches, nor do James' words about good gifts from the Father. It just says good gifts. Well, you got to read into it. That means money. Now, I'm not teaching that God will not provide for you. Please, let me balance this out. I am in no way teaching that God won't provide for you, for he will. He does. He is my provider. He takes care of me. But I'm going somewhere with this, so hang with me. I think the whole idea that Christianity is the gateway to spiritual wealth, if you only, or not spiritual wealth, gateway to wealth, spiritual shouldn't be in there, the whole idea that Christianity is the gateway to wealth, if you only exercise faith, is contrary to New Testament teaching. Because Christianity is not about you getting materially rich. That is not what it's about. I'm sorry, it's not. It's not. Jesus didn't come to make you a millionaire materially. He did come to make you a billionaire spiritually. Yes, he did. But we got to be so careful here because that's some of what you hear out there, that if you say the right thing and do the right thing, God wants to make you materially wealthy. I don't see that in the New Testament. Now, you know what they say about counterfeit money and how to spot it? You got to learn the real thing. You got to study a real dollar for a long time. Every nuance of that real dollar, every letter, the way it looks, the way it's printed, everything. And once you know 
what a real dollar looks like, when a fake one comes across your path, you immediately spot it. And this is what I think has happened in American Christianity. We don't know the real dollar like we should. So anything we hear, we go, oh, well, because so-and-so said it or so-and-so said it or because they look good on TV or they have persuasive speech, then, then it must be true. No, 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 no. See, if you were to say to me, Jeff, what's the greatest need for the American church? I would tell you to know the real dollar. And the only way you know the real dollar is by reading that New Testament backwards, forwards, up and down, in every which way but loose until you know it. Let me show you an example. For instance, one verse that's often quoted to substantiate this position of God wants everybody wealthy is found in Galatians 3, 13 to 14. Here's what Paul wrote. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. That's true. Having become a curse for us. That's true. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, you will hear some teach, quote, Abraham was a wealthy man. And the Bible says that all the blessings of Abraham are mine. That includes his wealth. Because he was wealthy, I should be wealthy, and you should all be wealthy too. So I receive that. Wealth is mine in Jesus' name. You've heard it. How many of you have heard it? Come on, if you've heard it. If you haven't, I don't know where you've been, but watch this now. I want you to look closely at this verse. I want you to study it with me. Look, the last part of that verse says that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. Why? Or in what way? That. Everybody say that. There's your connective word right there. It's connecting the next thought. That we might receive what, everybody? Wealth. No, the promise of the Spirit through faith. See, the blessing of, the, of, of Abraham for New Testament believers is not his material wealth. It doesn't say that. It is Abraham, it says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him as righteousness, and he became the father of our faith. He became the first one to be declared righteous by simply believing God. And now, how are we saved? We are saved the same way. I hear the gospel. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes on him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And I say, I believe that. Lord Jesus, come into my heart. You're my savior. I repent of my sin. Come into my heart. And when we do that, we are declared righteous, just like Abraham was declared righteous. And then we receive the promise of the spirit at the moment of our salvation. But you see, when, when promoters of the so-called prosperity gospel teach this, you often hear them say, no, Abraham was wealthy. And they're right. He was wealthy. But here's what you've got to watch out for in interpreting the Bible. You really have to be careful about applying Old Testament promises that were given to a certain person like Abraham or a nation like Israel in a certain context for a certain time under a certain dispensation that were never intended to apply to us. Are you with me? We really got to get this, folks, because, listen, if, if it's in the New Testament, it's for you and me. But if the New Testament doesn't carry over an Old Testament truth and apply it to New Testament living, it ain't for you and it ain't for me. Forgive the slang, but it's true. Right? For instance, you got to understand this about Bible interpretation. I'll give me, for example, they were told in the Old Testament, they were told, Never, never weave a garment from two different fabrics. 
but always weave it from the same fabric. Now, God was teaching his people purity. That's all, purity. Don't mix things up. Don't, be, don't, don't practice syncretism. Don't have a whole bunch of different gods. There is only one God. And I'm going to teach you that right down to the way you make your clothes. So you make your clothes with one type of fabric, not two or more. I don't want you to mix things up. But is that carried over in the New Testament? How many of you have on something right now that has many different fabrics? How many of you say, I don't even know what fabric I've got on? Right? But, you know, we got polyester. We got all kinds of things of fabrics. But, but it's not in the New Testament, is it? So it's not for you and for me. But now, in the Old Testament, we were forbidden to eat shellfish. If, we were, if the whole country were living in Old Testament law, there would be no red lobster. There would be no papados. It'd be very bad, very sad. No lobster. Stop, I'm, I'm killing myself. There'd be none of that. But, but look, now let me ask you. They were forbidden to eat those things. But now, does that carry over in the New Testament? No. What did Paul say? Whatever is put before you, pray over it and eat it. For it is sanctified, how? By the word of God and prayer. And, and in one fell swoop, Paul wiped out us having to live under that law. Amen. So that particular law in the Old Testament was not carried over in the New Testament, so we don't have to live it. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Because I love lobster. Oh. And, and, okay. Now, how many of you are tracking with me now? You're tracking with me. Amen. Come on. Say, yes, I'm with you. All right. So this passage about the blessings of Abraham has nothing at all to do with the material wealth that was given to Abraham. The verse clearly specifies it's about being righteous by faith and receiving the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. The New Testament, let me just take this further. The New Testament makes it very clear that most Christians are never going to be wealthy. How many of you can raise your hand and say, I know that's right. Okay. I just want to relieve you of some guilt here. You say, I don't know what's wrong with me. My faith must be bad because I'm not rich yet. No, that's not true. This is why the writer of Hebrews instructs us, quote, stay away from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. (laughs) Can we just stop a minute and say, Jesus, thank you for what I have. Man, you may have a 20-year-old car, but if it runs and gets you there, you need to be thankful. Amen. Amen. He, he says, be satisfied. See, I think discontent is one of the great ruiners of life. It is one of the destroyers of marriage. It, is one of, it, it wrecks you. If you don't learn, now, it's not saying you shouldn't be ambitious or want to climb higher or do better, but while you are where you are, thank God for what you have. For God has said, I will never, never fail you, nor forsake you. That's why we can say without any doubt or fear, the Lord, let's let's read it together, everybody. The Lord is my helper, and I am not afraid of anything that mere man can do to me. Give God praise. Hallelujah. Now, let me take it a little bit further. Jesus himself urged us, don't store up treasures here on earth. Where they can erode away or may be stolen, store them in heaven where they will never lose their value, never lose their value. They will never depreciate. Heavenly riches will never depreciate. They will never fall victim to inflation. They will never be stolen by man or devil. They will never lose their value and they're safe from thieves. And then Jesus said this about you and me. If your prophets are in heaven, your heart will be there too. Now let me balance this out for you. He's not teaching. Jesus is not teaching irresponsibility here. Or to be unwise in preparing for a time when you can no longer work. Retirement. But notice how he turns our attention away from having a primary focus on money onto the eternal riches that are rewarded to those who seek him first right? See, that's my thing. Uh, When I look at the balance of the New Testament, the gist of what it says regarding money, it's always telling us 
to, to turn our hearts towards him and away from chasing money. Not putting a premium on money. Not living and dying to pursue money. It's the balance of the message. It's the, that real dollar. James wrote, you can't measure faith by how much stuff somebody has. Now, see, we're told, if you've got faith, you're going to have a bunch of money. But that's not true at all. If, if people of faith were the people that really had the money, then how do so many consummately wicked people in our world, how are they so rich and they have no faith? No, you can't measure somebody's faith by the stuff they possess. James said, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom of God? He promised those who love him. If they're rich in faith, hold it, how can they also be poor? You say, Jeff, do you really believe somebody can be rich in faith and be poor? He just said they can. See, we've gotten an Americanized gospel taught us. We've, we've had an Americanized gospel taught to us. The, the gospel that many of us have been heard a lot of and some of us have been actually raised on has been corrupted by American prosperity thinking. Uh, it, it's, not, it's not the New Testament that God gave us that we've been taught many times, much of the time. Jesus warned us. He said, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of what a person possesses. In other words, life, living, joy, peace, do not equate into money, or money does not equate into those things. Money doesn't bring those things. God does. How do you get peace? You get it from getting right with God. When you get right with God, you get the peace of God. When you make peace with God, you have the peace of God. We, we, we enjoy the spiritual riches that Jesus bought for us. Now, do some people get blessed by, by God with a lot of money? Yes, but the Bible says to them, be careful that you don't put your security in that. And be careful that if God has made you rich, that you are a giver that you are a giver, that you are not a Scrooge sitting at home counting your money all the time. Stacks and stacks of money. Oh, I got another one, got another one. And you're you're letting the world outside that you could help go to pot. As I read my New Testament, I don't see an emphasis on riches and material things at all. I find a continual encouragement to turn your focus onto spiritual riches instead. Colossians 3.1, listen to this. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking what? Everybody read the three words. The things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Wells Fargo isn't above. Banks aren't above. Money's not above. It's spiritual riches that are above. And we're commanded that if we're raised with Christ, that should be our primary pursuit. Jesus said, seek first, not second, not third, not fourth. First, the kingdom of God. And all these things that are material will be added unto you. Man, I'll tell you, I could stand up and preach right now. I'm feeling this. But, but isn't it true? I, I, I have such a longing to clarify what the Word of God teaches about Christian living. I think it's been misrepresented to us many times. So if you hardly have two pennies to rub together, but you love Jesus with all of your heart, God has made you rich in faith, and you're like you got the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man died. Now, I'm not saying he died and went to hell because he was rich, but his riches had kept him from God. So he died and he went to Hades, but his poor servant whose wounds dogs had licked and who ate the crumbs from the rich man's table was sitting in Abraham's bosom 
He was poor on earth, but he was rich in faith. If God blesses you, he blesses you. That's good. I have a little philosophy. And my evangelist friend here, Scott Hinkle, will agree with me. If the gospel you preach won't preach anywhere in the world, it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that right? That's right. Amen. Everybody breathe and say, all righty, I got it. This is good. I have another question now. How do people who are mentally disabled or have dementia achieve salvation? You ever wonder that? Here's what they're really asking. The question is about somebody with a mental deficiency being unable to grasp the gospel because they have that deficiency so they can't respond appropriately with repentance to be saved because they can't understand the terms of the agreement. They can't understand what the gospel requires. Now, I I looked, and the Bible does not make a direct statement regarding the afterlife of those who have mental challenges that prevent them from clearly understanding and believing in Jesus as Savior. But a close look at related passages of Scripture appears to indicate that those unable to believe in Jesus due to age or ability or lack thereof will be covered by the grace of God. One example is one of my favorites. I've used this at, at many funerals when I was encouraging the loved ones left. Second Samuel twelve twenty three. you remember the story? David and Bathsheba had an adulterous relationship. A child was conceived, that child was born, and the child was sick, sickly and sick the moment it was born. And, and there was a time period there where David was fasting and praying and believing God for the baby's healing. And the baby didn't make it, and the baby died. And as soon as the baby died and they told David, they were afraid he was going to go do something drastic to himself. But instead he got up and he combed his hair and he took a bath and he got dressed nice and he went and he had a nice meal. And they said, what's up with this? You were all upset before the baby died. And, and, and now look at you, you're acting like it never happened. What's up with this? And David said this, David said, can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Catch that, church, because David is having a flash of divine revelation there. He said, I'll go to him one day because he's gone where one day I'm going to go. He's gone into the presence of God. I'll go to him, but I can't bring him back to me. That, That takes care of two myths right there. One that aborted children are masses of tissue. Or that this nightmare movement in our country right now, where they're deciding to kill late-term babies that are being born or have just survived an abortion, and now let's take them out. Because they're cramping our style. Now, don't give me the woman's health thing, please. Because I've read doctors, I've read MDs, I've read physicians, I've read their statements about this. One physician said, I've delivered thousands of babies, and in, with none of them was the mother's life at stake. Now, in that rare, rare exception, you do have a major decision to make, but watch this. The vast majority, 99.8%, 9%, that's not what it is. Amen. Let's get off of this, this fast talking, this, this redefining of terms, and this, this fast talk, like con talk. See, David said, when my little baby, this is a newborn, when my little baby died, my little baby went straight into the presence of God. And so, that knocks out one myth. They are not massive tissue. They are living, vital, breathing, real, feeling, emotions, physical pain, human beings. They're real human beings. They're real human beings. Do you remember when John the Baptist 
here's Elizabeth. She's six months pregnant. Mary has, has just realized that she has conceived by the Holy Ghost. All right? Now, let's follow the Bible. Remember, that's our authority. That's our truth. Now, Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. Here's Elizabeth. She's six months pregnant with John the Baptist. Here's Mary carrying God's only begotten son. Now, as soon as Mary said, hey, Elizabeth, the babe in Elizabeth's womb jumped for joy, moved with joy, could respond to outer stimulus, could respond to God's spirit. And the Bible says at that moment, Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And and the babe in her womb was rejoicing over the fact that that since he was going to be the forerunner of Jesus Christ, I mean, they were tied to the hip. I mean, they were tied to the hip. I'm going to preach that Jesus is is on the way. I'm going to prepare the way for him. Then he rejoiced when he heard the voice of his Savior's mother. Now, are you going to tell me that's a mass of tissue? Now, I'm not trying to make anybody condemned. If you had an abortion, if you know me, you'll know I love you. I'll never condemn you. God wants to, you to know that if you ask forgiveness, he'll forgive you. But this movement that's happening in America is so consummately dark and wicked. I, I'm amazed at it. It's so wicked to take children and just take them out. Uh-uh. No, 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 no. One of the seven things God hates is shedding of innocent blood. All right. Now, I didn't come to preach on abortion, but I want you to see what the Bible says. So I believe we can place our trust in the God of whom Abraham said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the answer is yes. So regarding, you know, mentally deficient people or or whatever, uh, little children who can't understand the gospel yet, God's grace covers them. There's no question about it. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Amen? Can we thank God? Come on. All right. Now, next question. Well, we are really shifting gears here because here's one about Israel. Please exp- explain the importance of supporting Israel when Jews, generally speaking, don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. To me, now this is that person that sent the question. To me, it seems like there is this newfound interest in supporting Israel. I honestly don't understand the emphasis that is being put on supporting Israel from a Christian perspective. Being a veteran and militarily speaking, I get it, but not as a Christian. I'm confused. All right, let me answer it. First, Christians should indeed support Israel and our church every month sends money to Israel. An Israeli, and we showed it to you on a Sunday morning. Christians should, uh, should support the nation of Israel because Israel, the nation, is exceedingly special to God. We read in Deuteronomy 7, starting at verse 6, these words. For you are a people, God says to Israel, <clears throat> you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasure possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples. You were the least among the nations. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he brought you out with a mighty hand And redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So the first reason we should care about Israel is because they are special to our God. Amen? Amen. Now, let me give you some other quick reasons. Secondly, God's eternal purpose is to bless the world through Israel. Do you know that? Now, he's already done it in a measure to a point for salvation through Christ is from who? The Jews. But the fullness of future blessing is indicated in a glorious promise we find in Isaiah 27, 6, quote, in days to come, Jacob, that means Israel, will take root. Israel will bud and blossom 
and fill how much of the world? All the world with fruit. So it is God's intention to bless the whole world through Israel via Jesus Christ. Now, here's a third reason. We owe a huge debt to Israel. Everybody hold up your Bible. Hold up your Bible. If you got your Bible with you, hold it up. All right, say with me. This is a Jewish Bible. It was given by Jewish people. Amen? God used the Jews to get you that Bible. So we owe a huge debt to Israel. All that we have that is worth having has come to us through the Jews. Our Bible is a Jewish book, and our Savior is a Jewish Savior. Amen? Amen. Now, here's a fourth reason. Christians should support the nation of Israel because of the Abrahamic covenant. It's smart to bless Israel. Here's why. God said to Abraham, I'll make you into a great nation and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and I'm going to curse those who curse you. How many of you like being blessed? Anybody want to be cursed tonight? I want to see your hand if you want to be cursed. Nobody wants to be cursed. All right. So if you want to be blessed then one thing you do is you pray, you pray for the peace of Jerusalem, for the peace of Israel. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you, he said to Abraham. Now let me talk straight with you for a minute about the Jewish people. It's true. If you've ever been to Israel, and I have, by the way, if I did a little 2020 trip to Israel, would anybody be interested in going? Okay, I'm checking. I'm just checking. No promises. I'm just checking. I'll bet you we had a lot of people that would go, though. Now, Amen. here's the deal about Israel. If you ever go, you notice this. The nation is a secular, unbelieving nation. Uh, but some are being saved. Some of the Jews are being saved. The day's going to come when they will experience a great turning to Christ. The Bible says that during the Great Tribulation, when Antichrist is doing his thing and taking over the world, the Jews are going to lose half of Jerusalem during the Battle of Armageddon. This is in Revelations and elsewhere. And just when Israel is on the brink of total defeat, and it looks like they're going to be wiped off the map, Jesus is going to come and place his feet on the Mount of Olives. That's what it says in the Bible. Remember when he lifted off to go back to heaven? The angel said to the disciples, the same Jesus that you saw leave is going to come back in the same way. Where did he take off from? The Mount of Olives. And all the Jews of Israel believe that that is what their Messiah is going to do. Return onto the Mount of Olives. And when he comes, they're going to run out there to meet their Messiah, and they're going to bow to worship him, and they're going to notice that he has nail prints in his hands and his feet. So how do you know that, Jeff? Because Zechariah said, quote, And one will say to him, capital H, Where did you get those wounds in your hand? And he'll reply, these are they in which I was wounded in the house of my friends. He came to his own, and his own, the Jewish people, received him not. So where did he get the wounds? In the house of his friends, in the house of his own. And they're going to believe when they see those wounds. Amen. 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 So that's a lot of reasons to be good to Israel, no matter what condition they're in today. Amen? Now, can you take another question? Here comes another one quickly. Why is Satan apparently in the presence of God when they discuss testing Job and later Peter in Luke 22? Where would this take place? Surely not in heaven at the throne of God where God resides and from where Satan was exiled. Surely not. Well, all right, let's answer this. In Job, the first chapter, Satan stood before God to give an account of himself, didn't he? But then it says, we notice that God initiated that meeting. He led the proceedings, and he remained in absolute control. The result was that Satan's power was limited and God was glorified. See, this person is concerned and disturbed that Satan went into, went into the, the third heaven, into God's, God's throne room, and, and confronted God. And they're concerned, how could that be? Well, here's some things to remember. First, Satan does not have open access to God's presence. He must be summoned by God. He doesn't just go barging in. Two, the visits are temporary. 
His time before God's throne is limited. When God's done with him, he's gone. Third, in no way is the purity of heaven tainted by the brief God-ordained presence of a sinful being who is restrained by God's power. He doesn't taint heaven. Fourth, last, Satan's access is only granted prior to the final judgment because after the final judgment, God creates a new heaven. And a new earth, he wipes away all tears from our eyes, reveals the new Jerusalem, and promises the complete absence of sin. And Satan is thrown into the lake of fire, never to go into the throne room of God again or to be summoned into it. Now I'm down to the last question. We're doing great. Here we go. A family member, this is this person talking, a family member has walked away from Christianity due to two sticking points about God that have derailed their belief. They say they've never received an adequate answer. Now, I only have time to deal with the first one tonight. I'm going to deal with their second one next week because these are two things that get a lot of people. First, they say, now I'm quoting the person whose faith has been derailed. I have a serious issue with our every action being already predetermined, yet asking for forgiveness and salvation. This takes me down a rabbit hole of why I'm reading it. That's the way they put it. Now, follow me because this is a theological question. This question assumes that human beings have no free will, no ability to choose. That's why they said, if every action is predetermined, why do I need to ask for forgiveness? That's their thing. If every action is predetermined, how am I guilty before God? So their question rests on a false premise. It confuses God's foreknowledge. I know you're going to sin with God's irresistible predetermined will. Your every move is controlled by God. Some people have been taught that. Now let's track with me now. First, Guilt could not exist without the ability to choose. How can you attribute guilt to somebody if they have no choice, if they must do what they do? If you've got a robot here and you program the robot to walk around the room 20 times, and then when he's done with the 20th walk around, you you say, I'm going to take a sledgehammer and knock you to pieces because you walked around the room 20 times. He would say, but you programmed me to do that. How, How am I guilty? The issue is he's not. So how could God attribute guilt where choice is non-existent? Because, listen, folks, we are guilty. The human race is guilty. The human race is guilty. Paul said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And again, in fact, he says, in fact, all the world stands hushed and guilty before almighty God. So we have all sinned. And fall, but, but if there's no guilt, how can we be judged for sin and sent to a devil's hell? If there's going to be guilt, there has to be choice. If there's no choice, there's no guilt. Are you with me? James wants us to be sure we understand. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted. God will never say, hey, hey. You've had a rough day. You never have tried that, that drug your friends are messing with. But I understand if you want to go give it a shot. Go ahead. Try that drug. I'm with you. I'm with you. I understand. Or I know you're not happy in that marriage. Isn't that person there at the office a looker? And you know what? I understand your pain. So why don't you just go ahead and take care of your needs because I get it. I'm with you. It's all about you. See, when you hear that, that's not God because he's never going to tempt you to sin. He's never going to tempt you to sin. When you're tempted to sin, he's nowhere involved. You're being led away by your own, your own lust and enticed. 
And the devil gets in there, as soon as you start yielding to your own lust, the devil gets in there and he holds the bait out and he tries to entice you and pull you into something sinful. But God never, he's never involved in that game. James says, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So God is nowhere in our sinful decisions. Nowhere. Nowhere. Okay? So, so it's not true that every move I make is predetermined by God. I have a choice. I have a choice. Didn't Joshua say, choose you this day who you will serve? Didn't he say that? The good news is we have a choice whether or not to serve God. You have a choice whether or not to turn to Christ. You got a choice. Or else there is no guilt and there should be no hell. I'm done. All right, I'm done. All right, let's stand together, can we? Now next week I'm going to tackle some I've really kind of saved the best for last because I got some good ones next week. I had to kind of get loaded for bear before I deal with these last ones. But they're going to be good. How many of you are enjoying this? Are you, is it helping you? Is it helping you? Amen. Let's lift our hands to the Lord tonight. Isn't Jesus so good? Isn't he so good? Lord, we praise you and we thank you and we bless you and we magnify you. We glorify your name, Lord. Thank you for the word of truth. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for giving it to us, preserving it for us through the ages. Thank you, Lord. That you haven't left us without a light, but your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank you, Lord, that you guide us with your word, teach us, protect us, preserve us, strengthen us, build our faith by the word of God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.